0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Uh, let me extend uh, my welcome to you as well. It's great to see you all here and especially to sing with you. I was a bit further up in the middle of the room today than I usually am and I have just felt surrounded by your voices and very encouraged and thrilled to be back at church uh, and to be singing God's praises with you. Um, We're going to spend some time in Psalm 2, then we'll sing again, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, today when we take uh, some bread and some wine and remember the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to start today with a question, and it's this. Who commands your loyalty? Who or what commands your loyalty? Loyalty. Now, the Battle of Malden is a very old poem about a real battle. This poem was written in uh, Old English or Anglo-Saxon. This actually is a, a, a National Trust sign that shows that marks the site of the Battle of Malden uh, in nine, the year 991, so more than a 1,000 years ago. The Anglo-Saxons were bravely fighting a Viking invasion, and they lost. And as the warriors saw that they were losing and they were about to die. Instead of running for their lives and trying to save their own skin, they saw an opportunity to honor their people through their death. And in the poem, one of these warriors called Brithwald calls out these words. There lies our chief, all cut down, good man on the ground. Forever may he grieve who now from this war play think to go. I am old in years, hence I will not, but by the side of mine own lord, by my chief so loved, I think to lie. That's a a different kind of culture being expressed there. Where is Brithwald's ultimate loyalty? It's to his tribe, his people, and his king. In ancient times, your identity was your solidarity with your people and with your king. What a wonderful opportunity to die, with the people you love. My king and my tribe shape the sense of who I am, he says. They shape my whole life. What about you, friends? Who or what commands your loyalty? Now, in traditional cultures, it's often the family. Your place in the family determines who you are, how you understand yourself, the kind of choices that you make. If you go against the family, you risk shame and dishonor. And these cultures can give people great sense of security because they know who they are, they know how they fit in. But they can also be tight and oppressive and even lead to honor killings when somebody shames the family. That's a traditional culture. Now, in modern cultures, our ultimate loyalty is not to the family, but to self, to me, myself, and I. In modern cultures, you have almost complete autonomy to choose your identity and your own pathway in the world And no one else can tell you what to do. They just have to affirm your choices to find out who you really are. You have to look within, see your own deepest desires, and act upon them. Now, such cultures are afraid that if we deny those kind of impulses, we'll be denying who we really are, and we'll be enslaved. But these cultures are full of contradictions and just as oppressive as traditional ones, but in a different way. How can you base your identity on your own deepest desires? You know as well as I do that your, di- your own desires contradict each other. And how could it be possible to make life choices that weren't influenced by other people? It's impossible, it's incoherent. So, on this day, who or what commands your loyalty, your ultimate loyalty? Because that will shape your sense of identity, of who you are. It will shape the course of your life, the kinds of decisions you make. It will influence all your choices, big and small. It will determine whether you think your life is good and happy or frustrated and unfulfilled. So where you place your ultimate loyalty is essential for you, not just today, but Monday morning, Wednesday night, Friday afternoon. How do you respond when life gets pressured? How do you deal with ethical challenges? How do you deal with temptation? How do you make big life choices like decisions about what to spend your money on, decisions about where to live, your time, choice of life partner? How do you raise your children if you have them? What kind of values do you give them? How do you do your work? How do you relate to your colleagues and your boss, clients? Now, our response to all of those questions comes out of loyalty, what we are loyal to. And if we're ultimately loyal to family, then it will give us one set of answers. And if we're ultimately loyal to self, it'll give us another whole set of answers. But if we are ultimately loyal to Jesus Christ, that will shape us in an entirely different way. So I want to persuade you today that Jesus Christ is the only king worth everything. Jesus Christ is the only king worth everything, the only person worth your ultimate loyalty. Now we get this idea very, very early in the Bible, right back here in Psalm 2, which Liz read for us. Please open it, if you've closed your Bible, to page 543, page 543, and we'll read this Psalm together, right back here. This was probably written about 3,000 years ago, a 3,000-year-old Hebrew poem. And the writer poses the question of loyalty. Which king will you serve? It says, be wise and be warned. And be warned that if you go against God's Messiah, it will break you. But be wise and serve the right king, and life will be fulfilled. Now, as Liz has already mentioned, during the month of August, we're spending some time in the book of Psalms. Right in the middle of the Bible, we've got our own hymn book. We saw last week how the Psalms speak to us, and the Psalms speak for us. They reflect the whole of life, the rough and the smooth, the ups and the downs. Some Psalms are beautiful madrigals of praise. Other Psalms are the blues. And I said last week, we need to learn to live in them. Because in, and in summertime, life slows down a bit. There's more time for us to reflect, to think about our priorities, maybe to refocus, to retune, and get back into some good spiritual rhythms. So as we look together as a church at the Psalms, can I encourage you to make them your daily bread? And I wanted to just mention again this book over here on the table. We've got these for a month on sale or return. A fantastic resource that helps you to go through a portion of a psalm every day with a very insightful reflection and a short prayer. Uh, they're nine pounds each. Just put the money in the basket. If you can't afford them, just, you don't even have to speak to me. Just kind of walk up to me and just give me a little nod like that or raise an eyebrow. And I'll know, it's just between you and me. We don't need to say anything. You can have one free, all right? If you can't afford the nine pounds. But do take one. One uh, of our members who took one last week said to me on Friday night, uh, the introduction alone was worth the price of a book. Now, there's a sales pitch you can't refuse. Last week, we walked through the gateway to Psalms, Psalm 1. It shows us how to flourish. It spells out the only way of life that does really flourish long-term. Uh, it contrasts that with the way to perish. And it urges us to choose life by delighting in the law of God. The law is God's instruction, his word, the Bible. And that will make us like a tree. This week we're in Psalm 2, and we discover that the book of Psalms actually has a double doorway. So imagine you're walking up the driveway, uh, a long driveway with, with perfectly manicured green lawns and, and wonderful shrubs. And you're coming around, and you come to a wonderful stately home. And there at the front of this mansion is a very grand entrance and two, two a double door, two carved wooden enormous doors. And on one side, you've got Psalm 1. And on the other side, you've got Psalm 2, the double doorway to the book. And Psalm 1 says, uh, it says you've got to think about God's word and how you relate to it. And Psalm 2 says you've got to think about God's king and how you relate to him. God's word and God's king, they're the two double doors, entrance to the book. And in fact, there's a double blessing in these two psalms. So Psalm 1 begins with the words, Blessed, or happy, is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but delights in God's law. And Psalm 2 ends with, verse 12, Blessed, happy, are all who take refuge in God's Son, the King. Happy, the man. Happy, the woman, who lives by this word and loves this King. So, a bit of introduction, back to our main point today. I want to persuade you that Jesus Christ is the only King worth everything. Psalm 2 uh, makes its case in four parts. Hey, there you go. I even had it on the screen. I forgot about that. Uh, firstly, preparation, then installation, then coronation, then invitation. Preparation, installation, coronation, invitation. You can see that this psalm, this poem, breaks down very neatly into four sections. Each one has three verses, and they move the case along. Firstly then, Preparation. Read with me again, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, as we're going through this, you've got to bear in mind that this is a little bit like going to watch a play, a Shakespeare play, or watching a Shakespeare movie, where there's different characters speaking. And as we go through these four parts, different voices speak. And the first part, preparation, prepares the way. It's a bit like the chorus speaking. They're introducing the ideas. And they say, they show this scene of absolute uproar and tumult and scheming and plotting and conspiring. Now, in the ancient world, a change of a king, if the old king died and there was a new one coming in, it was often the time when the other kings would take their moment to try and seize power. And rebel. It's a little bit like you move house and your neighbors try and take all your stuff. Has that ever happened to you? A few people are saying amen. Now, these kings are revolting. They're revolting against two rulers. The Lord, there it is in uh, verse two, the Lord, you see it has like small capital letters. They're ru- rising up against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, who are these two? Lord, when you see it in your your Bible in that small capital letters, underneath that is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the name, the, the precious name that God gave to his people, especially at the time of Moses. That name was so revered that later on Jewish people wouldn't even say it. So a devout Jew reading the passage would not say Yahweh when he or she saw that word. They would actually replace it with the other word for Lord, Adonai that's how precious and revered and awesome that name was to them so these kings and rulers are rising up against Yahweh the living god the only one who is and against somebody else who here is called his anointed it's a bit of a title anointing is where in the old testament they would pour oil over the head of a new king, and that's called anointing. And that would be the way of uh, affirming that he was now in position and pouring out God's blessing and approval on him. So these kings are revolting and rebelling against the Lord, God, and against his anointed one, his chosen king. And their way they position their rebellion against God and his king is in verse 3. It's by is by characterizing God's rule as oppression. They make out that God is a killjoy and a bully and a tyrant. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, there's no evidence that God is chaining and shackling them, but they'd want to throw off all divine restraint. Now, actually... This is talking about kings and rulers. But every human being, every last one of us, man, woman, and child, starts life in rebellion against God. We all throw off his shackles and want to break his chains. And in our heart of hearts, we don't want to be told by God what to do. So we are in this verse. We too start life as rebels against God. Wanting to throw off all restraint. And to do it our way. Now what is God's response to this? His response is installation. Installation. Now you probably think about installing a new kitchen or a bathroom suite. God installs a king. Let's read it again. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is God's response to human rebellion. He laughs. and God doesn't laugh very often in the Bible, only a handful of places. And when he's laughing, he's not chuckling. This isn't an entertained snigger. This is actually the laughter of derision. He sees the most powerful human opposition on earth. He sees the superpowers. He sees nuclear warheads. He sees anything that's ranged against him. And to him, it is comical. It's ridiculous. It's like a gnat attacking a lion. And he laughs. And then he speaks. And his voice is such that it absolutely terrifies them. This is God's response. Verse 6, I've installed my king. It means he's appointed, formally appointed, his human king. God, God doesn't intervene directly here. He intervenes through a mediator, through somebody, a king who stands in for him and brings his rule to the world. And it says here that he's installed his king on Zion. Now, Zion was a, a hill in the city of Jerusalem, still is, and it was a place where they built the temple. The temple was absolutely beautiful. It took years and years to build. It was the place, the center of their religion and their faith. And the Jewish people went there because that's where God's presence, although he fills the whole heavens, God's presence was specially there in the temple. And God's king, the kings of Israel, of Judah, were installed, were coronated, crowned, at the front of the temple. So God is saying here, my response to human opposition is to bring a king and to install them on Zion. Then in the next section, the king himself speaks. So this next section is the coronation, and this is what the king says. Verse seven, this king speaking. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces like pottery now this is fierce the king speaks and he describes what god has published god's decree that appointed him officially as a king and he uses some amazing language here god himself has said to him you are my son today i have become your father now in the ancient world kings were sometimes thought of as the offspring of the gods You might have heard this if you've read any or seen any movies about Egypt, that they thought the Pharaoh uh, was the, uh, the, the result of a God sleeping with Pharaoh's mother. That is not what is going on here. God says, Today I have become your father at the moment of the kings being crowned. So this is more like adoption. It's a legal statement. The living God brings a human king into an extraordinary place of privilege. He says, Today, I've become your father, you've taken the place of the status of my son, is there any stronger way that you could say, I've got your back, you're my guy, and God makes him this most incredible promise that, uh, just ask me, and I'll give you uh, every nation in the world as your people, just ask me and I'll give you the whole earth as your possession, even the ends of the earth, the furthest away bit, the bit that's off the edge of the map. You can have that too. Just ask. That's quite a kingdom. It's quite a rule. In fact, verse 9 expresses it in very strong terms. It even sounds quite violent. I think that you have in the church Bible there a little footnote that's probably better. If you look down there, it says 9 Uh, He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's probably better than break them. He will rule his people strongly with an iron scepter. Unbreakable rule. But those who continue to oppose him, he will shatter. This is a powerful king. One that you wouldn't trifle with. And that leads, fourthly, to an invitation. There's an invitation that comes out of this. Verse 10 to 12. Therefore, The result of all that, you kings, be wise and be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In light of all the power and the majesty and the awe, That God has invested in his king and this rule. There is only one wise wise course of action. And that is to serve this king with fear and trembling. And to kiss him. Kissing a king in the ancient world was a sign of great respect. Paying homage. A little bit like bowing and scraping on the ground. Serving him with fear and rejoicing with trembling. Now this isn't kind of cowardly, scared fear. It's grateful respect. It's honour In the Bible, the fear of God is the beginning of being a wise person. Fear is a sense of awe, wonder, and great respect for God. And the fact that he's shown such grace to us makes us love him and respect him and worship him. Now that would be wise. But there's also a warning about the anger of the king in verse 12. It can flare up in a moment. Don't trifle with him. Don't mess about with this king. He's not a little teddy bear. He's not a Santa Claus figure. He's not a cuddly man. He's a great king. And there's nothing more terrifying than angered majesty. So it ends with an invitation. Take refuge in him. While you still have time. Now, does this psalm give us any problems? Does it give us any problems? I think for the original readers... It did somewhat, because they never saw it happen. They never even came close. Even at the fullest extent of David and Solomon's reign, the two greatest kings, they never ruled more than the few nations around them. And then after that, all the readers saw was small, divided country. Israel never made it as a global superpower. In the power politics of the ancient world, they barely showed up on the radar. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome, Israel never really got on the map. So, was the psalm writer mistaken to make these grand claims? Was he mistaken? Was he basically rattling his saber, you know? As men are prone to do, talk big. Small dogs have the biggest bark. Was he mistaken? No. The reality of this psalm came about in an unexpected way centuries later. You see, many years later, a king was born in the line of King David, but he was not born in a palace, and by this stage, the Roman Empire was in charge. He was born in a stable, but he was born in David's line. He was born to a virgin. A woman who was betrothed and never slept with a man. He was born in a miraculous way. And an angel appeared to his young teenage mum and said these words. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you are to call him Jesus. Which means God saves. He will be great and will be called, wait for it, the son of the most high. You know where that language comes from? Psalm 2. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Jesus grew up and at his baptism at the age of 30, a voice spoke from heaven. The voice of God himself spoke from heaven. Heaven opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove and this voice said, You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And a while later, Jesus went up with his disciples, some of his followers, up a mountain, to the top of the mountain, and there he shone so brightly they could barely look upon him. It was called transfiguration. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared, the cloud representing God's glory, and covered them. And while they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. And a voice came from inside the cloud, the presence of God himself, and said, this is my Son. Whom I have chosen, listen to him. The words of the king. Now one of those present at that event, a man called Peter, gave his life for Jesus Christ the rest of his days. And many years later, he reflected on the events that he'd seen. And this is what he wrote, close to his own death. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Now what does this all mean? Putting together that old poem from a thousand BC with the events of somebody born in a stable who grew up and lived a fairly ordinary life in many ways and then was crucified on a cross. The Apostle Paul summed it all up at the beginning of his greatest description of the good news, the book of Romans, and he talked about the good news the gospel in these ways. It's a good news that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, the king and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, the name means Messiah, anointed one. Jesus Messiah, King Jesus, our Lord. So what does all that mean? It means that Jesus is the anointed one, installed by God as his son. The one established as king over all the earth, over every nation to the ends of the earth, the one to whom all people will bow, and the one we should all kiss and serve with joyful fear. I wanted to persuade you today that Jesus Christ is the only king worth everything. So is he? This king gave his whole life to save his people. This king used his power to serve people. This king is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He shared our circumstances. This king is a tender prince. He won't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering candle. This king is humble and lowly of heart. He rode into the capital city on a donkey. This king looked at the city of Jerusalem and wept and broke his heart over it and said, how I have longed to gather you to me, but you wouldn't come. This king was crowned with a crown of thorns and died the death of a criminal. The king was crucified. And on his cross, they nailed a sign. It said this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was written in three languages so that everybody in the world could read it, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. This king even prayed for those who were crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. They sneered at him on the cross, you know. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Can you see the irony? And then this king rose to resurrection life as the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, thereby beginning a whole new world. And this king gathered his followers together and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. You see how his king his, this king's kingdom is coming? It's when we go and tell the good news to somebody else from all nations so that the whole world will hear of Jesus, King, our Messiah. So now we see him. The King has come. We see his installation at the cross. We hear his coronation verdict. This is my son. We see the empty tomb, God's verdict, that this one is the Messiah. And now we all receive an invitation. Repent and believe the good news. This good news was published for you now all of that led an old man dying in prison to write these words remember jesus christ raised from the dead descended from david this is my gospel for which i'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal but god's word is not chained Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Messiah Jesus with eternal glory. Jesus Christ died so that you might live. He was taken captive so that you might walk free. He took the punishment that was due to your sins. You too may obtain salvation. The rescue. The ultimate healing that is in him. And with it, eternal glory. If you trust him. If you kiss the son, serve him with fear, rejoice with trembling. And so now, this king calls you for your ultimate loyalty. Friends, be wise. Live by his life-giving word. Be like a tree planted by streams of water, fruitful, not withering, prospering in all the ways that really count. And friends, be warned, for he will come again. Next time, not as a humble servant, but as a conquering warrior. But for now, there's an amnesty. There's an invitation. There's an offer of free grace to stop rebelling against God to stop fobbing God off with minimal attention, giving a nod to God, to stop suppressing your knowledge of God and to submit your whole life to his loving rule. Not a chain, not a shackle. Blessed, happy are all who take refuge in him. There will be no refuge from Jesus when he returns, but there is a refuge in Jesus. You will never know another king like him. You will never find a better place to put your loyalty. You will never find a a more wonderful saviour. And you will find that his kingship gives you life. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And paradoxically, you will find, if you trust Jesus Christ, that the more you serve King Jesus, the freer you become. The more you serve King Jesus, the freer you become. So will you come to him today? Will you make this day the day of your salvation? Will you bow the knee to this great king? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a a few minutes. What What a wonderful time, a perfect time to say, yes, Lord Jesus, you spoke to me this morning. I want to come to you in faith. Please receive me. And he never says no. Let's pray together, friends. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we read these old words written so many thousands of years ago and suddenly the light breaks out of them and we realize that you're present with us now. Your Holy Spirit is here, he's been here all morning and you're now calling out to us and showing us that we need to put our loyalty in the only place that we really should. That you have loved us before the foundation of the world and you've sent your dear son the only begotten one, Jesus, your son, our saviour, to come and rescue us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here, or more than one, who need to bow the knee to Jesus today, that they would do it. Give them grace and draw them into your family. And those of us who know you, may we put our trust in you afresh and believe in you wholeheartedly and walk with you day by day, moment by moment, and be loyal to you in every changing scene of life, in trouble and in joy. For we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more, or to get involved with church life visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net